hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. Our topic today is going to be kidney transplantation. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, I was a cardiologist and an internist, but I had a particular focus on nephrology, and I work with nephrologists almost every day. Renal transplantation for patients with end-stage renal disease, in a sense, is a form of a modern-day miracle. People are relieved of the burden of using forms of dialysis, and they can have an operation and then go back to normal life. They make urine again, and they no longer are burdened with so many aspects of end-stage renal disease. Now, the trade-off is a transplantation patient does receive chronic immunosuppression, but this has been refined in recent years largely to three drugs, prednisone, a corticosteroid, uh, tacrolimus, and, and mycophenolate. Those three immunosuppressants are reasonably well tolerated. And while there are certainly complications with renal transplantation and immunosuppression, patients by and large do very well. Well, the reason why we're going to talk about this is that so many of you have um, been aware that patients uh, through the vaccine era have been told they can't get a transplant unless they take a COVID-19 vaccine. Now, there's been no prospect of double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials of COVID-19 vaccination uh, in the setting of renal transplant patients. I can tell you, it would seem risky to me because the vaccines, particularly the messenger RNA and adenoviral DNA vaccines, they install the genetic code for the spike protein in the body. We don't know where the genetic code goes. We don't know how long the spike protein lasts, but it lasts at least six months. And we know the spike protein is expressed on cell surfaces. So the body is going to start to attack itself after the vaccine is injected in the body. So the body attacking itself and then attacking an organ that's trying to survive in the body on immunosuppression is going to be even more difficult. Now, there are data suggesting that vaccination ruins corneal transplants and lung transplants, but no information on kidney transplantation. Keep in mind, kidney transplantation is largely reserved to academic medical centers where the doctors and nurses and other workers took the vaccine They were mandated to take the vaccine. The institutions had policies regarding the vaccine. So as you can imagine, it's going to be very unlikely that any one of these centers is going to publish a paper demonstrating that vaccination worsens renal transplantation outcomes. They're simply too committed. Uh, The research departments have to sign off on these manuscripts before they're submitted. So I'm highly suspicious that will never really know the story about renal transplantation and vaccination and whether or not that was a good thing or not. I can tell you the retrospective data show that uh, in general immunosuppressed patients have uh, higher risks with COVID, but it's not because they're immunosuppressed, it's because they're more frail. That's the reason why, and they're on multiple medications. Any patients get an organ transplantation is not perfectly healthy it's because they have underlying medical diseases that cause the organ failure to begin with. Keep in mind, when we treat acute COVID, we use immunosuppressives like prednisone. 
So COVID-19 is not a problem of immune deficiency. It's a problem of a hyperimmune response when patients get really sick. So in preparing for this show, I reviewed uh, some major documents, the Scientific Registry of Transplant Recipients, STR, the most recent version in 2021, which gives us data uh, up, uh, uh, is published in 2023, but gives us data through 2021 on what's going on. Now, keep in mind, uh, in 2021, uh, the uh, vaccination program just started. So we won't have, uh, uh, you know, considerable data to review here. But I wanted to let you know, in the United States, we had 25,000 successful renal transplantations. Finally, uh, that mark was hit. Now, that may seem like a lot, but it turns out we have nearly 800,000 individuals with end-stage renal disease. Now, the majority of the end-stage renal disease choose hemodialysis, where they go to a dialysis center and they're, they're hooked up to a dialysis machine three times a week. You'll see these dialysis centers in shopping malls and strip malls uh, in order to be convenient for patients. It's all paid for by the U.S. government. Uh, Medicare automatically pays for all of this. Uh, a smaller percentage choose peritoneal dialysis, which is a way of infusing fluid into the abdomen through a catheter and then draining the fluid out. And uh, very sophisticated patients can actually use a home, what's called cycler, and do this at night while they're sleeping. And then even fewer patients than that do home hemodialysis, where they uh, hook themselves up to a dialysis machine at night, sleep, and then work through the day. It takes a lot of sophistication, and quite honestly, it takes a lot of courage to be able to manage this and insert the needle into the skin and uh, get the blood flowing for, uh, for this dialysis procedure. The average patient on hemodialysis only lives five years. A transplantation gives someone a chance to live five, 10, uh, 15, maybe even 20 years. And there are patients who even get a repeat, a repeat transplantation. But to go through the transplant process is grueling. Uh, there are so many steps for patients to navigate through. Patients have to be their own advocates. It takes so many clinic visits and tests. And the reason why patients are put through all of this is to be sure there's not a complication after the vaccine. So, for example, if a patient was harboring tuberculosis and then they go on immunosuppressives, then they could get reactivation tuberculosis. Uh, another example is if they had uh, underlying uh, very bad teeth, they could get a dental infection and that could spread to the heart valve and cause endocarditis and, and that would precipitate death. So patients are put through a rigorous set of steps. All the medical problems are clarified, corrected, that could be corrected. And one of the critical steps is vaccination. And so the vaccine record is reviewed. And the idea here is if patients uh, you know, are not fully vaccinated, that maybe they could run into a problem. So for instance, uh, a pneumococcal pneumonia, if they haven't taken the most recent pneumovax or a haemophilus uh, influenza B pneumonia. So there is a, a rationale for vaccination during um, uh, end-stage renal disease and patients preparing for dialysis. But the issue on the table is, is there a role for COVID-19 vaccination? 
brand new genetic vaccination with no assurances on outcomes or whether or not this is going to trigger autoimmunity or ruin the transplantation procedure? Should we just jump into that? Well, on the Substack Courageous Discourse, I reviewed a paper several months ago uh, by ethicists who said, listen, this is no question. They should be vaccinated or not get a transplant. They were presuming the vaccines were safe and effective. So for this show, I've called upon a new friend from Canada, Don Halbert. Don is from Niagara Falls, Ontario, and he's going to tell you his story of someone who contracted COVID-19 early, recovered, had longstanding diabetes and progressive renal disease, and then needed a renal transplantation. And you have to hear the story of what happened to Don when he began this process in Canada of seeking a renal transplantation and then running into this issue of mandatory COVID-19 vaccination. This is a story you have to hear. Now, Don is a sophisticated man. He's not in the medical field, but let me tell you what. He's like a lot of you who listen to my show. He does his own research. So let's get on with the show. Exclusive interview with Mr. Don Halbert, patient with end-stage renal disease in Niagara Falls, Canada. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCulloch. I can tell you, one of the greatest pathophysiologic drivers for tiredness and fatigue during the day is poor quality sleep at night. People always focus on how long they slept, but they never think about the quality. And to improve the quality, there's a terrific product. That's the Healthy Cell REM Sleep Supplement. And what I tell friends and family and patients is take it every night consistently. Uh, it comes in a continue, like a, a convenient bioabsorbable gel pack. Uh, take it right before you go to bed. Take the gel pack, brush your teeth, go to bed. Its effects are nearly instantaneous and patients get a well-rested sleep continuously, day after day, week after week, month after month. And then that daytime tiredness and fatigue melts away when there's a greater restful sleep the night before. So give it a try. Go to uh, HealthyCell.com and in the promotional code, type in out loud for 20% off your order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, your host, and I have a great session, actually a featured interview for the show today. It's Mr. Don Halbert. And, uh, you know, he reached out to me. We got connected on social media. Uh, He's from Niagara Falls, Ontario. Many of you knew I grew up in Buffalo, New York. It's on the other side of Niagara Falls, that Western New York, uh, Southern Ontario uh, junction, and and Don is here really to tell us uh, to tell us his story is about his medical navigation through 
chronic kidney disease, end-stage renal disease, and transplantation. So, Don, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you very much for having me. Why don't you give us the background uh, about your medical, you know, your medical situation and, you know, what was going on in the few years that, that led to your discovery about kidney disease? Well, when I was 19, I got diagnosed with juvenile diabetes. And um, at that age, that was the legal age here in Canada. And I wasn't very well behaved and didn't take it very seriously and wasn't probably seeing the proper um, medical, uh, like an endocrinologist or anything. It was just a general practitioner back then. And um, so then life happened and uh, I moved away to Costa Rica in about, uh, what year did I move there? 2005. And I knew I had had kidney disease before I left. Um, and then when I got there, the endocrinologist, um, I had been there for 14 years and the endocrinologist said, you know, there's going to be a point in your life where you're going to have to take this quite seriously. So I would move back to Canada in 2019 in March. And, um, that was right before everything hit with, with COVID. And then I would come down with COVID before there was any kind of treatment. It was very early. I got it in um, late February. I know it's not common that, that they claim that it was circulating then, or I, I'm not sure what they say, but um, I, I did get it in, in, in February and it was a very severe case. And I even stopped breathing one night. Um, and so I would come out of that. And then I got a referral to a nephrologist in St. Catharines. And I would go to the St. Catharines Hospital and begin treatment uh, there. Um, she would diagnose me with, um, at the time, it was you'll probably know better than me, but I think it was stage four. I think there's five stages, right? Mm. So it was stage four. And I had had about 27% um, kidney function at that time. And okay. now, now yeah. let me just ask you, uh, was the uh, COVID episode in 2019 or 2020? Well, if I got here in 2019 in March, it would have been 2020. Yeah. Okay. So February 2020. And how old were you at the time? You're going to ask me to do some math. I, I, I'm I 52 now. Okay. So you're so, 52. So you went from 19 to 52 with, uh, with diabetes. Yeah. Were you on insulin all that time? Uh, yes. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But in Costa Rica, the only insulin available to me wasn't what we have here in Canada with the Humalog and stuff, it was the old school N and H. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so you are, you have a diabetes, roughly 33 years of type one diabetes, and then you get COVID-19 February of 2020. Uh, did you feel like the COVID-19 was such a severe illness? Were you, were, were you hospitalized for it? No, I was afraid to go to the hospital, to be honest. 
Okay, and didn't get any treatment. Do, do you think that that uh, ultimately hurt your kidney function? Just having the episode of COVID? That's what I said to the doctor when I got diagnosed, yes. Okay, and did the doctor agree or? Not wholeheartedly, but mm -hmm. the, she was... Uh, she was through the whole process with me. Um, she she did say definitely it it likely played a part, considering okay. the severe severity of the illness. Right. And did you get to a point where where the blood test becomes so abnormal or you stop peeing that you got to a point where you needed dialysis? Well, there's a, a couple of things there. No, I never stopped producing urine. Okay. I was pretty, I could, because I always drank a lot of water. I always drank about uh, three to four liters of water per day. Wow. I've always got a water bottle, just got used to it living in Costa Rica. It's hot there. Mm. So um, I never stopped producing urine, but it did get to the stage at 8% mm. where it was required to put me on peritoneal dialysis. Okay. And can you explain for our audience what that involved? Well, there's a, a surgery, a procedure where they cut two holes into your abdomen. And again, I, I don't want to go where the doctors would go about peritoneal and explaining how it, mm -hmm. how it works, but uh, your listeners can look that up. But they cut a couple holes in your stomach and it, they insert a tube. Uh, it's kind of, what do they call it? When it's the normal dialysis, it's a fissure. I don't know what they would call this. I called it a peritoneal um, access point. Mm -hmm. And so there's a tube that's sticking out of your stomach. And then every night you would set up the machine. And that takes about 40 minutes to set up the machine, get everything prepared, before you're connecting, everything has to be sterile. And you have these big, big bags of fluid that are gonna that are connected to what's called a cycler. And it cycles through and it'll go into your abdomen and then do what's called a dwell. And it sits there and then it flushes it out. And what it's doing, I guess, is taking out all the toxins that normally the kidneys would be doing. Mm -hmm. Um and and so that's what I was doing for about eight months I did peritoneal wow. dialysis. Wow, and you did this during the COVID pandemic. Uh, so you did it at home, home peritoneal dialysis? Every and, night before I went to bed, yep. And, just and it was 10 hours. Wow, so nocturnal. So uh, so I wanna, I, what I want our listeners to know is, is uh, Dawn is very sophisticated. And this is, it takes a lot of training and expertise. Did you ever get the catheter infected or do you keep it clean the whole time? No, I never got an infection. Wow, you're really good. You're really yeah. good. Did you have any medical training before all this? No, no, not at all. But I, I'm a data analyst, so I mm -hmm. research everything. Oh, okay, you that did helped. your homework. Good. Oh yes. Yep. Yeah, many yes. doctors say that if they went into end stage renal disease, they would actually opt for peritoneal dialysis. You can't do it forever, but they would do that for a period of time before you know, the next step. So next step uh, will either be graduation onto permanent dialysis or get a kidney transplant. So what happened next? Well, I would like to mention though, they, they put me on peritoneal because of my lifestyle. I work from home 
as a manager for an oil and gas company um, in Alberta. And um, it was necessary. It was one of my, my things. I was really, really concerned that was I going to be able to continue working? And thankfully, I worked through those entire eight months. Wow. And uh, yeah, it never affected me whatsoever, other than the fact that I, I couldn't travel. You know, the, the majority of people, though, go on peritoneal dialysis or hemodialysis, they end up going on disability. Vast majority. So, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, what you did was incredible, Don. That was, uh, that was amazing. So take us through the next steps now. So um, very early when I was talking to the nephrologist, um, we had quite a, a an open relationship, very transparent with one another. I ask a lot of questions. She grew used to my questions through the entire process. Every interaction I had with any doctor or any nurse always said the same thing. They've never seen somebody ask so many questions <laughs> not that it was a bad thing i didn't have anybody say a bad thing so um very early on i wanted when i realized that the writing was on the wall and i was being told that someday in the near future i just didn't know how quickly this would happen but in the near future i was going to be going on to dialysis and then we needed to start looking for a living donor, because that was the first program they signed me up for was the living donor. Mm -hmm. So um, when I when I did that, um, I'm a, I'm a very direct person. So when I when I knew that I was going to be going for a kidney transplant, ultimately, so I'm looking past the dialysis now and I'm looking, I tend to do that right? Anybody I work with says, Don, you're always thinking 10 years ahead, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I thought about that. And I thought, okay, I need to have a discussion with my nephrologist that the world is going in a certain direction with COVID. I had already had it. At this point, by the time it was looking like I was going to end up on, on dialysis, and then very quickly, hopefully, um, get a transplant. There was a lot of stuff in the media about um, people who chose not to get the the vaccine. And I brought that up to her right away that that makes me nervous. Um, and she's calmed me down. And uh, so what she would do from there, she knew that I wasn't going to get it. I just didn't feel I did. I, I mean, we can get into the reasons why, but Largely, it's based on natural immunity. I had already had it multiple times. Mm -hmm. By then, I had had it twice. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I was really standing firm on my natural immunity. And what, I, I felt were you, that my... Were you afraid of side effects of the vaccine? Yeah, because I analyze risk all day long. This is what I do as a data analyst and, and information and everything, everything I do as a computer programmer as well. I analyze risk and I, it, we, we can talk more further as it gets into it about that mm -hmm. risk and the analyze constant analyzation of risk. Um, but for now, uh, what I'd like to say is, is that 
I felt she was really helpful. She was, she was in my corner and I would find out along the way just how much she was helping me. And so that I wanted to get that out of the way. I did mention that I was nervous, didn't know how this was going to go for an unvaccinated person. Um, and then, uh, we moved, the process started and, um, I would end up on the dialysis and then, um, there was some hiccups along the way, if you wanted to talk about those. But what, were um, you still on peritoneal dialysis or did you go on to hemodialysis? I never, I don't know what, I know what it is, but I don't know what that experience is. I never went on it. Never went on hemo. So you're on peritoneal nope. the whole time. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what were some of the bumps in the road? Okay. So, um, one of them was, okay. It's important to note that we have a nephrologist. I have, there's like 17 people on my team that were involved in this transplant. And, um, so there's two hospitals. There's one in St. Catharines, which is my nephrologist. And when she, when I, once I've progressed and I get closer to transplant, the people that were, the doctors that were looking after the transplant were in Hamilton, Ontario. Mm -hmm. So that's about an hour, just over an hour away from me. Mm -hmm. So she would hand the baton off, the nephrologist at some point. And so the pr process kind of went like this. I went to the nephrologist and then she passed me off on the peritoneal people. And then they saw me a lot, um, especially through training and all of that. And it was all the roundup towards the ultimate of getting a kidney transplant. And we were moving in a direction of the, like I said, the living donor. And this has got to be mentioned. So I went through seven people. I don't know if that's normal, but according to my nephrologist, she's never seen somebody find seven people willing to give up a kidney. But I did. Um, and they had all, to fast forward that, and that was a whole process, but they all got eliminated but one. Hmm. So um, I think that started to make them nervous that I only had one left. And, but again, I'd be just guessing, but it, it seemed like that. And then discussions came up about going on the deceased donor list. So now I'm going from living donor program to deceased donor as a plan B in case um, my last one didn't work out. And um, that one that was hanging in there was a lot of a variety of different people that stepped up for me, including my wife. She had a kidney stone at the time. As soon as I saw that, she's out. Um, I had my my preferences because there were one, two, three, four. There were four of the seven that were unvaccinated. I really wanted to have an unvaccinated donor. And the last one was unvaccinated. But, uh, yeah, so in the end, they would um, put me into, um, into the deceased donor program. 
But what happened to that one living donor that was unvaccinated? How come that one didn't go? I just remembered that you wanted to know the hiccup. So there is a hiccup in here, a pretty big one. Mm. So one day I I phoned Hamilton and one of the the surgeon, in fact, um, his admin, she answered the phone and we were talking or she phoned me, one or the other, but we were talking on the phone and... Um, in the conversation, it came up that, no, I, I have no intentions of getting this vaccine. And she said something to me that scared the living daylights out of me. And by then I was still actually seeing the nephrologist in St. Catherine. So I, mm -hmm. uh, she said to me that there's no way you're going to go through and get a kidney transplant unless you get it. Mm. And obviously my heart drops and these are panic moments, right? These, yeah. You know, somebody tells you that if you don't, then the worst is going to happen to you, right? And okay. you're not going to get a kidney and you're not going to live. So I panicked. I emailed my nephrologist who I trust, trusted the whole time. Um, and I said, look, this was what said to me. I'm very, very frightened right now. I don't know what's going on. You know, nobody told me that this was mandated in Hamilton. Mm. And so she said, well, give me a sec. I'll phone Hamilton. I'll deal with it. And then by then I had, I had left my office and I went out and uh, I was shopping and I get a phone call from the same admin. And she apologized profusely mm. because she had overstepped. She shouldn't have said anything to me. She's not my doctor. Yeah. And that wasn't the case. She was very mistaken. So that relaxed me. But still, you know, these are moments that, especially mm -hmm. for somebody that's on dialysis, you oh, panic. Yeah. When life, it's either life or death for you. Every day you're thinking about your own mortality. When moments like that happen, they're 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 hard to deal with sometimes so that was one of the hiccups and then um then like i said they moved they transitioned me to hamilton where i started to go meet the surgeon and start the whole process where they're looking at me and doing pet scans ct scans you name it all the scans to rule out anything wrong with me cancer they tested everything mm -hmm. including one of my doctors who was apparently i didn't know this until i had him um was a little bit overly like he even got taught uh talked to by my my nephrologist to say hey i'll take care of the kidney you take care of the heart he was a car <laughs> my cardiologist and uh so he would send me because they found something on a cat scan on my lung and I said right away, I said, well, that's going to be scar tissue because I've had um, pneumonia a couple times in my life, very severe. Mm. So they kept monitoring it. But then he escalated it just before, soon before the surgery. It was the last test I had to get done to get cleared to a angiogram. Mm -hmm. That's where they go with the tube up your arm, right? And into your right. heart. Right. Yeah. 
that was the coolest thing ever because I was wide awake and I, I could feel the camera and I was asking questions like I always do. And yeah, yeah. that was. But, but, but the bottom line is you, you must have passed those tests. But what happened to the living kidney donor who was unvaccinated? Okay. Because that leads right into the surgery and everything happens very quickly from there. So, um, Okay, but before I explain that, the nephrologist would also tell me, because I had suspicion she was helping me along the way somehow, because originally mm. I was said, it was said by her that you need a dual transplant. We're going to cure your diabetes. How do you feel about that, Don? And I said, wow, that's fantastic. How are you going to do that? They're going to put a pancreas in me at the same time as they're going to put a kidney in me. So I got all excited. And then all of a sudden, conversations about the pancreas stopped. So I got suspicious. So I asked her one time, why are we not talking about fixing my, curing my diabetes anymore? And originally she didn't really want to talk about it, but then she find, she did. And she said, it's because in London, Ontario and Toronto, they're the only two hospitals that will do a dual transplant and mm -hmm. both are mandating the vaccine. So oh. you can't, you can only go to Hamilton who didn't mandate it. Mm -hmm. So um, that that's what I wanted to mention. And as far as the the last the last donor, um, he went through all the tests, but he's a a busy guy. He's a uh, machinist, I think, of some kind. I don't know, mm -hmm. but very busy guy. And they, I got the distinct impression they felt that look, he's not moving fast enough getting these tests done. And there was a sense of urgency with me because mm -hmm. I was down to 4% kidney function at this point. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they ended up putting me on the deceased donor. He was still going. He didn't know that I had got a kidney in me and until I, I told him. They, they were still testing him and moving him forward. Oh, wow. So it happens really, really fast. But that's mm -hmm. what they did is they, they put me on the deceased donor list. Mm -hmm. And that story is just going to blow your mind how fast that happened. Yeah. So what happened? So, so what would happen is I'm not going to speculate here. I'm just going to say the facts your listeners can, can do, you know, think however they want to think about this. I'll just say what happened is I was told about six months before my actual surgery to get the transplant that Don, you know, we're going to put you on a deceased donor list just to have that little plan B in place. Right. I'm like, okay, along with that, it requires you to come in once a month and do, you're going to know this as a doctor, some kind of a test of my antibodies up to date so that mm. they can match the best possible mm. donor they can to my mm. current situation with my blood. So they, I have to go to uh, St. Catherine's every month to get that test done. So I did that and I thought I was on this list and I was doing that. And then all of a sudden, one day, maybe three weeks before my surgery. So my surgery was July 14th. So this was a while later thinking I'm on this list and I'm doing this test every month, you know, to be sure. 
And then I ended up uh, getting this phone call over breakfast and it, and, and she says, can I mention names? Is it okay? But it's, it's, it's fine by me. It's, it's your discussion. So you've given consent. Okay. So, uh, so I get this phone call. I'm calling on behalf of, of Dr. Johanna's office and I uh, got some great news for you. You're, um, you're on the list. And I said, what list? Well, you're on, you're on the deceased donor list. She's submitted you just before she left for maternity leave. And uh, congratulations. And I'm like, well, um, interesting. So I said, okay. And um, I, so I, I get off the phone. I'm all confused. I phoned my nephrologist and I said, I thought you said I was already on this list. She's like, I don't know. I don't know. You'll have to talk to Dr. Johanna. And I said, well, she's on maternity leave now. So I, I don't know what's going on. So then the next day I got a letter, a physical letter in the, in the mail. And it says, welcome to the Trillium gift of life network. Um, that's who it was from. And that is the, the official organization that mm -hmm. handles transplants here in Ontario. So I was like, wow, that looks pretty official. And then this is where the, the, the roller coaster, you know, it just, it goes crazy from here, but we did miss it. Don, Don, before we get into this really accelerating part, I, I think this is going to have a good ending. We're going to take a, just a, a station break, a, a pause. Many voices, one freedom, united in the First Amendment. Our goal is to herald the voice of genuine liberty at AmericaOutloud.news. A place where you'll find the naked truth expressed with a patriotic heart. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. Clean, pure, with premium ingredients. Global Healing's Pure Plant Protein 
offers 20 grams of protein per scoop, and it's a perfect way to maintain and build lean muscle while indulging yourself. It combines enzymes and probiotics to maximize nutrient absorption, improving digestion and your gut health. Available in vanilla and chocolate flavors, elevate your protein consumption while supporting your overall wellness with pure plant protein. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Loud Talk Radio, this is McCullough Report. And Courageous Discourse Substack, we're resuming our conversation with Mr. Don Halbert. Uh, he's, he's, he's given us, uh, I think, a tremendous background, uh, you, know, you know, over 30 years of type 2 diabetes, chronic kidney disease. He goes on uh, peritoneal dialysis, uh, navigates the whole issue of getting a living transplant donor, doesn't move fast enough. Of course, that's very difficult. And then he thinks he's on the, the list for a cadaveric transplant, but uh, then he ultimately, after several months, gets a letter. Oh, you're on the list. And that's where we are right now. Don, pick it up from there. Well, with your permission, there's a section that got me to that, that point that I believe that your listeners are going to want to listen to. And that's how I got to that point being unvaccinated, considering there were two fatalities around the same time as I got my kidney. So that part's interesting. I got, so before I got the phone call that said, Dr. Johanna is proud to announce that you, she's put you on the list. There was a point in, I don't remember, in 2022, I believe, where she, um, assigned a doctor to me and the doctor's sole job was to convince me to get the vaccine. So there were, yes, there were four sessions with this doctor. And that's the part I think that your listeners really should listen to. That was one of the most interesting parts. So if you don't mind, I'll talk about session one. Session one was an introduction. We met each other and then it was me laying the ground rules down. I laid the ground rules. I asked him first. I said, if you disagree with them, please just let me know. Um, but I don't think you're going to object to any of these. And I said, if you're going to provide me any evidence, I don't want anything from CNN. I don't want anything from any mainstream media or anything at all because it's just not valid. If you're going to submit something for me to consider, it needs to be peer-reviewed medical documentation that I can verify myself. And I said, do you agree? Yes. Okay. I said, number two is my lane. Who am I? I am an unvaccinated, previously infected multiple times. By that time, I had gotten it three times now. So I said, that's who I am. I am a 50-year-old male, previously infected, never vaccinated. Do you agree to those two two guardrails? Yes. Okay. So we started talking. We did the introductions and everything. And then it, it slowly started 
right? With some subtle stuff. And I listened and listened to him show some old, it seemed to be a lot of old stuff from very early on in the, in the pandemic. So then where it gets really interesting, it kind of continued. He did, he wasn't getting anywhere. It wasn't convincing me at all. And I don't think he ever felt he was getting anywhere with me. But ultimately, like I said, we would do four sessions. So I'm going to fast forward to the fourth one. And in this one, it was almost like a Hail Mary for him, right? Because we're on our fourth session now. And uh, yeah, he hasn't gotten anywhere. So what he did was um, he said to me, how can I, with a clear conscience, Don, roll you into an operating room with a bunch of people that are immunocompromised and you're unvaccinated and everybody else is vaccinated in, in the room? I just, I don't feel right doing that. And But, and he, but he was assuming the vaccine would work. How, how did yeah, you know? Yeah, so, so I, I did come back. I did come back and I said, well, hang on, before you go too far with this, Number one, number one was our number one guardrail. And, and I said, do you remember what that was? And of course, he, he didn't get it exactly, but close enough, whatever, right? That we would provide peer-reviewed studies. So I said, can you provide me with a peer-reviewed study that shows that whether you're wheeling in a vaccinated person or an unvaccinated person, it makes a stitch of difference at this time? Because unless I'm wrong, Doc, I said a, an, a vaccinated person can still catch it and transmit it the same as me and he said well yes that's true and i i said so can you provide this study he would ultimately provide a study i can't remember what it was it was out of israel it didn't talk to it didn't talk specifically to that so then he continued and i said uh, i let him finish because he really went on for a while about this operating room and the risk of infecting these other people. So I would say one more thing in that regard, and then I'd, I'd hit him with, that was lights out. But I I said, um, hang on a second. I have another question for you. Um, with regards to transplantation, once I get this transplant and this kidney is in me, um, you're going to put me on a large selection of, of drugs, correct? Yes. I said, and those drugs, they're designed to suppress my immunity so that I don't reject the organ, correct? Yes. Okay, so why would you want to give me something that you're just going to take away anyway? Right? So they, they want to inject me with something because they want to provide me, apparently, with some kind of form of immunity towards COVID. But at the same time, they want to give me all these drugs after I get the transplant that are going to take away my immune system anyway. So I, I don't understand the point unless it magically skips over the COVID vaccine, but I, I don't think so. So that didn't go very far, but then I said, we continued a little bit. And then that's when I said, well, I said, I saw your study. It's nine months old, nine months to 10 months old. I'll look at it later. It's quite lengthy, but I'd like to, I said to him, do you trust the CDC? Absolutely. Well, fantastic. So I have this study and it's it's here in front of me to remind me it's it's uh it's titled covid-19 cases and hospitalizations by covid-19 vaccination status and previous covid-19 diagnostics 
uh, from California and New York between May and November 2021. And 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 this has me in it, has somebody that's unvaccinated mm. and never uh, ne or unvaccinated and has previously recovered from COVID. And I said to him, now, you can read it later. You can send it to all the other doctors if you want. But at the end of the day, this document says that a vaccinated individual with previous COVID infection has a 19.8 fold, so a multiplier, 19.8 times less likely chance of requiring hospitalization upon another infection. So that's a vaccinated person. And I had already told him, don't get excited on the first one, but he did. And he said, this is what we're trying to tell you, Don, vaccination works. And I said, but hang on, you haven't heard my lane yet. My lane is unvaccinated, previously infected with COVID, right? And recovered. And that one is 55.9 times less likely to require hospitalization. And you know what he said to me? He said, I waved the white flag, you win. We got nowhere more to go. So he then went back to Dr. Johanna and said, he's not getting it or whatever he said. I don't know, but it ended there. That was the last session. And then I was able to proceed to now move what, through what the What type process. of doctor was this, Don? Good question. I I can't with a, I, I, I can't clearly remember what that was. What would motivate a kidney transplant program to make such an investment in time with a brand new vaccine that was completely unproven that, you know, this is not like uh, penicillin is, you know, proven to treat streptococcus. I mean, this is, uh, this is an extraordinary effort to try to convince you to get vaccinated with a brand new genetic vaccine. Let me just interject here a little bit. You know, patients who are immunocompromised do have worse outcomes with COVID, but it's not because they're immunocompromised. It's because they're older and they're frail and their condition has lent them. We actually give immunosuppressants when we treat severe COVID. We give corticosteroids. The, the COVID causes a, a severe illness in the hospital because the immune system is too good. We actually use corticosteroids and other drugs uh, to reduce the immune system. So this whole mm -hmm. idea of, you know, a, an organ transplant person has to take an experimental vaccine, it's gonna be essential to the transplant, is completely unfounded. It's completely bogus. And, uh, you know, the great concern, and this has already been demonstrated in multiple studies, is that if you take a vaccine, you actually rev up the immune system and, and whether uh, uh, you've taken it before or after the transplant, and it actually worsens your transplant outcomes. So, yeah. so you, you would never wanna take a vaccine. Uh, and the, what happened is all these transplant doctors presumed the vaccine would, be, would work and they presumed it would be safe for transplant patients. There were no prospective randomized trials they had no idea if it was going to be safe. So the, the question is, what would motivate them to do this? It's just extraordinary. Listen, we only have a few minutes left, so why don't you go ahead and wrap it up on, on what happened in the next steps, but that's just an incredible story, incredible part of your story. Yeah. So the roller coaster, here's where it drops. So 
right after I got the letter, about three days later, or three days later after getting the letter of acceptance to the list, I get this phone call. And they're like, okay, Don, are you ready? You got your bags packed because your plan B, in case plan A, which is recipient A, doesn't say they turn down or something happens in the process of them getting their kidney, your plan B, you could be getting a kidney right now. So do you have everything packed and all this stuff? And I'm like full panic mode. Whoa, what, what's going on, right? How can this happen so fast? And... So that was a whole process talking and learning to them what questions to ask, what questions I couldn't ask about the recipient or the uh, donor. And all of that went down on the first one. And But they, she told me there's less than a 1% chance that you you will end up with this kidney. It's going to go to the, the, to the uh, recipient A. So that was true. It would. And um, then... I I went through that and they said, okay, yeah, they called me the next day and they said, no, no, they it went to recipient A. So, but you must be high on the list. So expect another phone call. And then the next day I get another one and I'm like, it's raining kidneys. Like what the heck? So, so I'm like, and they do it again, your plan B and this and that. And they walk me through the whole same process, asked all the questions that I was learning to ask. And then um, it would move, it would move forward. It would take another, it would take two days and they would say, ultimately it went to recipient A. And then, but they said, clearly you're high on this list if you've got two calls in two days. So then two days later, so that now we're four days in this process of getting these phone calls and they would call me and say, your plan A, get your butt to Hamilton now you're getting a kidney and I was like I felt like I was hit with a shovel I well, well listen let's go ahead and take us through the transplant because this does happen there's multiple calls and what have you so uh what was the transplant experience like transplant um it was well I don't remember much I know I remember going into the room and they showed me the the kidney they were mm -hmm. cleaning it up and everything and then I don't remember anything. And then coming out of it, um, you know, I they had me on some pretty severe drugs. They told me originally it was going to be a scar about this big. It's that big. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I, when I came out of it, I was told the fastest way out of the hospital is to get up and move around. And I'm all for that because I was normally walking about 10 kilometers a day, even with the PD tube in me. Mm -hmm. I always walk lots. That's my exercise. So I started walking around the hospital and I would get out of the hospital in about six days. Excellent. Did the kidneys start making urine right away? I never stopped. Like none of this, uh, like I, I had a catheter obviously after the surgery mm -hmm. and I was producing urine just like I was before. Oh, okay. Okay. Yep. Okay. Very good. Very good. And then how about the numbers, the blood test numbers uh, for the so serum threatening? Yeah. They told me that it would cap at, at 50 or six up to 60, between 55, I think they said, and 65, because mm -hmm. I'd have one kidney. Um, 
And obviously at the start, you see the kidney, you know, starts to progressively get better. So rather than tell you that whole process, I'd rather just tell you what the last results were. The last results were 90% kidney function. Mm-hmm not 65 okay good. and my creatinine level was 87 87 so that'd be about one milligram per deciliter for the united states wow this is a fantastic story and so have you had to be hospitalized since the transplant no i've never felt better i mean the the donor to me was it's as close as you can get to a living donor because it was a deceased donor but he was still medically connected mm -hmm. to life support and he was 25 years old. Wow. Wow. So I have a very young kidney in me. Someone was looking out for you. This has been an incredible story. So I know uh, so many of you know my followers and fans and others uh, will be listening in on this. You know, people who've received an organ transplant. We've been talking to Mr. Don Halbert, uh, Canadian, who's worked his way all the way through this. Great story. You know, the interesting part was the tremendous advocacy you had from the nephrology group there, the transplant group uh, in Hamilton that was open-minded. They did put you through this exercise on, on the vaccine. But I want people to understand that COVID vaccination is not a prerequisite for transplantation. It's not an evidence-based prerequisite. And we've just talked to somebody who went through a successful transplant, no COVID-19 vaccine, and look how good Don looks. Don, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.